Hello and welcome to this Science AAA's webinar. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. In today's webinar, the second in our Science and Life series for 2020, we are talking to some fantastic guests about vaccines, uh, specifically developing a vaccine against the SARS-CoV-2, uh, the novel uh, coronavirus that is causing so much havoc around the world today. Uh, finally, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Okay, so it's time to bring in our guests. I'm going to introduce each of them to you and give them an opportunity to, for them to tell you a little bit about themselves and what they bring to today's discussion. So I'm going to start off with Dr. Sarah Gilbert joining us from the University of Oxford in England. Uh, Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself? Good afternoon. I'm Sarah Gilbert, Professor of Vaccinology at the Jenner Institute, part of the Nettle Department of Medicine, University of Oxford. Uh, and I've been project lead on a project to develop a vaccine against the novel coronavirus using the replication deficient simian adenovirus technology that we've been working on for a while to make vaccines against a number of different emerging pathogens. Great. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, next up is Dr. Kizmekia Corbett from the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH. Uh, this is an institute that you might know of as the one that Dr. Fauci directs. So uh, Kizmekia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yes, I'm Kizmekia Corbett. I am the scientific lead for the coronavirus vaccine and immunopathogenesis team at the NIAID Vaccine Research Center. So I work under the direction of Dr. Barney Graham um, and particularly oversee the preclinical um, portfolio for our coronavirus vaccine program, um, which has such landed me in this position to be here today talking about um, one of our vaccines that we are co-developing with Moderna Therapeutics. Fantastic, thank you very much, Kizmakia. Uh, our third guest is Dr. Catherine Edwards from uh, the Vanderbilt Vaccine Research Program in Nashville, Tennessee. A very warm welcome, Catherine. Thank you, I'm really happy to be here. Um, I am a pediatric infectious disease specialist who've been working on vaccines uh, for children and adults from, for all kinds of pathogens for four decades. Um, I've been very involved also in uh, surveillance to see the impact of vaccines and over the past decade have worked very extensively with the CDC to um, work on vaccine safety and to provide programs that will allow us to monitor the safety of the vaccine. I've also been very involved in data safety and monitoring committees for the COVID vaccine. So I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, welcome, Catherine. And uh, last but certainly not least, we have our very own science senior news correspondent, John Cohen, who is joining us uh, from San Diego in California. Uh, welcome, John. Thanks, Sean. I, I've covered vaccines for science since 1990. And I recently um, found this report I wrote when I was in the seventh grade about the March of Dimes. So I've been covering vaccines in my mind since I was about 13 years old. And uh, they're my passion. And I have traveled around the world um, meeting with people who are making vaccines or who volunteer for vaccine studies um, for many diseases for many years. Wonderful. Thank you, John. Uh, so I'm really keen to dive into the meat of the discussion, but I think it would be really helpful to lay out some of the basic concepts around vaccines for our audience. So, John, why don't I start with you since you've been talking about this since you were 13. Um, what is a vaccine and how does it work? Basically, a vaccine stage is a mock war. So you typically use a piece of the pathogen, in this case a virus, 
or the whole thing or something it secretes that leads the immune system to learn how to respond appropriately should the real thing ever show up. That's all it is. And, and it does it safely. That's the big difference. <laughs> the real infection can hurt you. Vaccines, if they're good vaccines, cannot hurt you. So uh, we're definitely going gonna to talk about safety, and I know that Catherine is keen to, to give her opinions on that. But um, maybe, um, Sarah, I can come to you and, and ask you, do vac- all vaccines work equally well uh, in all patients? And what about differences in age, differences in sex, or if patients have any underlying issues, especially uh, maybe immune issues? Yeah, patient, um, patients have different responses to vaccines. First of all, there are different types of vaccines, and uh, they can have different safety implications in different populations. In terms of the immune response, we'll always start testing vaccines in healthy adults between the ages of around 18 and 55, because that's the best group to look at the, the safety of the vaccine in the first instance, but it also happens to be the group that responds the best to vaccination. So we may be giving ourselves a slightly rose-tinted view of the immunogenicity when we start in our phase one studies. But what we really then need to do is look at the use of the vaccine in different age groups. So with age, um, the immune system tends to respond less well to vaccination, and we can start to see a decline in response to some vaccines, even as early as the 60s, from some people certainly going through the 70s and 80s, there is less response to vaccines that is given. And we see this all the time with flu vaccines, and there are actually some flu vaccines that are specially formulated to give to older adults to try and overcome that. We'll also see differences in people with um, some degree of immune compromise, which might be due to um, immunosuppression from medication that they're taking, maybe people who are HIV positive. Uh, We might see, we see slight differences between the genders. Women tend to respond slightly better to vaccination than men do. Um, That's true across animal species as well. And um, there's some difference in the area where people live. So depending on what, commensal organisms you're exposed to as part of your daily life, you then may make a slightly different response to a vaccine. There's probably not an enormous amount of difference between different ethnicities, but different geographical regions certainly have people who respond differently to vaccines. And so vaccines that are going to be used across the globe need to be tested very widely before they can be rolled out for use. Mm Now, Sarah, I should. That's a really, a really good point, and and one of the things that that you know that just to uh, embellish what Sarah said, for instance, the chickenpox vaccine that's used, um, it's just a, a for children. It's a live vaccine, but now we are having to make an adjuvant or or add an adjuvant to an inactivated vaccine for adults. So, you know, we have to design the vaccine based on the immune responses and the safety and and uh, so so we use examples of vaccines that are already developed to answer some of those questions as examples. Mm-hmm. Great. So I, I just wanted to let the audience know that unfortunately Sarah does need to leave a little bit early um, as she has a, a big press conference uh, around one of the vaccines that she's working on. Um, but I, I wanted to come back, Sarah, to something that you, you mentioned, which is that there's different types of vaccines. Could you talk about uh, some of those? Um, Catherine mentioned live vaccines, attenuated vaccines. How do they differ and, and how do they, uh, are the different vaccines different uh, as far as efficacy? So the old fashioned ways of making vaccines would be either to make a lot of the pathogen. Let's talk about viral vaccines just for simplicity. So you'd produce a lot of the pathogen, inactivate it and use the whole inactivated virus as a vaccine. And it may not give a very strong immune response. So you might need to add an adjuvant to improve the immune response to it. And it's safe because it's inactivated, but you don't necessarily get a very strong response even with an adjuvant. 
So the other traditional way of making a vaccine is with a live attenuated organism where you passage the virus in cell culture until it loses some of its genes, it loses some of its pathogenicity, and then you use that uh, to give um, a very much toned down version of the disease, which doesn't really take much for the immune system to overcome, but that leaves behind the immune memory so that when that person encounters the pathogen in, in its full pathogenicity in future, they, they have the immune memory to deal with it. But more recently, we've been developing um, types of vaccines where we just take a part of the pathogen and use it to make a vaccine. So that might be a recombinant protein vaccine. So you can make a vaccine against influenza by just expressing the hemagglutinin molecule from the surface of the flu virus uh, and taking that pure recombinant protein and you can use that as a vaccine uh, either with or without an adjuvant. Or you can make a DNA vaccine or an RNA vaccine. So both pieces of genetic code that don't contain any of the proteins from the virus itself, but they contain the coding sequence to express one of those proteins once the vaccine's been used. And when that coding sequence gets inside the cell of the person who's being immunized, then the protein is made, and that's what stimulates the immune response. And another way of de delivering um, a piece of DNA coding part of the pathogen genome is to use a viral vector. Uh, and so you can have a viral vector, which is very safe because it can't spread through the body after you've used it as a vaccine, but it carries the piece of genetic information from the uh, viral pathogen into the person who's being immunized and again expresses that protein inside their cells. But unlike a nucleic acid vaccine, the DNA or the RNA vaccines, if you use a viral vector, you do actually have a, a live viral infection going on and that provides some other signals to stimulate the immune system to respond to the protein that's then being produced. Mm -hmm. So um, there are different types of uh, vaccines which are in use and in development, and some of them are better inducing um, cytotoxic T cell responses than others. Some of them, like the recombinant protein, tend just to give you an antibody response, uh, which may be sufficient for protection, but you may get better immune memory and a longer lasting response if you have a vaccine that gives you a good CD4 T cell response. And if it gives you a good CD8 T cell response as well, as the, the live vaccines tend to do, then you may, you've got a different immune mechanism that can contribute towards protection. So. There's no one size fits all. There's no saying that what any one of these technologies is better than the others. They all have different safety implications, different manufacturing information. Uh, and we do need to remember that when we're thinking about designing vaccines, if it's something that we want to use on a large scale, we have to be able to make a lot of it uh, and not too expensively either. Otherwise, we're not actually gonna be able to deploy the vaccine. So taking all of those things into account, uh, we then need to think about what level of immune response do we need to protect against the pathogen that we're trying to deal with? Um, and for coronaviruses, we actually don't know. We don't have any vaccines against any of the human coronaviruses. So all of the people developing vaccines now against SARS-CoV-2 don't really know what they're aiming at. So it's gonna be really big news when the first vaccine manages to demonstrate efficacy in a phase three trial, because that will then be correlated with the immune response that that vaccine generated and that will inform the development of all the other vaccines, which may be using different technologies, uh, and it will um, speed progress for all of them. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Well, there was a there was a lot to to unpack there, so I want to I want to do a little bit of jargon busting quickly. Um, and Kizmeki, I'm going to come to you for this. Um, so um, uh, Sarah talked about uh, adjuvants and using viruses that are going to stimulate the immune system. So um, so my understanding is that it's not just the actual vaccine that you're giving, but you need to give the immune system a little bit of help to respond to the vaccine. Is that right? 
Right. So um, basically what adjuvants or viral vectors in the case of which Sarah was talking about do is they help. Um, actually, there are T cells that are called helper T cells for that reason um, to stimulate the immune system. So this basically provides an innate or immediate, so to speak, boost to the immune system to basically trigger the immune system to say, hey, here's something that I'm giving you. I want you to then make memory responses to it. Um, and, and so, um, you know, people use adjuvants, for example, um, in that way with protein subunit vaccines, um, viral vectors helping, you know, their own way um, to stimulate the immune response. Um, and um, the interesting thing is depending on what type of immune response you want, you can select adjuvants to um, to stimulate the immune response in that way. So there are adjuvants that, you know, will help give you a Th1, which is a, one type of T cell response, as opposed to a Th2 type of T cell response. And so, um, you know, there is the vaccine that is the actual um, antigen or the thing that you're giving the body. Then there's the platform, which is the technology that encompasses the antigen. And then there is this other thing that um, some people use, which are called adjuvants, that help both of those together, um, that are given to, with both of those together to help the immune response to mm -hmm. um, be boosted, so to speak. Right. Um, so it's, it's a lot of jargon. I, 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 we recognize that, mm -hmm. but you know, there are lots of moving pieces um, to all of this vaccine action. Mm -hmm. So let me actually stay with you, Kizmekia, because I, I, the next question I want to ask is a, a term that is being used a lot in the media, and that's herd immunity. So what, is, what does this mean, um, and what is, how do we get to that critical point of herd immunity? Uh, you know, Sweden, I understand, tried to go for herd immunity early and apparently failed. Other countries have gone a different route. So how are we going to achieve herd immunity? Um. So um, I, I like to start this conversation by first saying that herd immunity is a terminology that arose from vaccinology. So herd immunity is not something that you should think about as, oh, enough people in the population have been infected, and thus we have you know, 60, 70% of the population now immune. Achieving herd immunity by infection is not the way to go, um, I should say, you know, in my opinion, and I think in a lot of other people's opinions. Um, herd immunity is a threshold of immunity that is achieved by vaccination um, in a population that renders a particular virus, in this particular case, um, ineffective at transmit transmitting because there are enough people within a population that are immune. Um, the estimate for SARS-CoV-2 is that, you know, 60 to 70 percent of a population must be immune for us to reach that threshold. And so, um, you know, there is a long way to go, <laughs> uh, so to speak. Uh, but I, I kind of want to clarify that generating herd immunity by natural infection, particularly when a virus is dangerous enough to land people in the ICU and on ventilators and kill whatever subset um, of people that it does, uh, it's 
that's why vaccination is something that is is critical in a time like this. I want to add something to what Kismekia is saying. With polio, the first vaccine came out in 1955, and it was 70% effective. About 70% of the people received it over the next five years, and the incidence of polio dropped in the United States by over 95%. So a 70% effective vaccine used by 70% of the people did the job. You don't need a perfect vaccine, and you don't need everyone to take it. And when you combine the vaccine-induced immunity with the natural immunity that occurs from people who are naturally infected, you can get to that threshold earlier than some people ex expect. Mm -hmm. one, one other thing about adjuvants is they came out of butter initially, and then they turned into oil. And the idea was to throw something into the body that was so very foreign that the immune cells show up at the spot where the injection occurs and go, whoa, what is this thing? And that was the whole idea is you're shocking them with something really kind of ugly to the body. Right. Great. So, yeah, Sarah, go ahead. I'm afraid I have to, to leave you now. I'm very sorry. I have to go and join a press conference, but I'm sorry to uh, to leave you. Hope it was of some use to you. No problem. All right, Sarah, good luck. Thank bye you bye. for your great work, Sarah. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. I wanted to add just a comment about herd immunity. Um, and herd immunity um, depends also on how infectious the virus is. And and so, um, you know, certainly with the are not of, uh, of, of COVID or of SARS-2, probably somewhere between three and four, um, you know, 60 to 70% uh, herd immunity will probably um, stop the contagion. Um, however, with, with very contagious viruses like measles, where they are not is, is you know, 20 or so, um, we need 95% of the, of the population to be immunized. So the herd immunity is dependent upon how infectious the virus is. I often explain herd immunity to um, to the lay population as it's a little bit like a four-way stop. So that if every single person stops, uh, we're fine. If one person doesn't stop because the other people are, are, um, are immune, we're fine too. But if we, uh, if two people don't stop or three people, so it's dependent upon the, the population to kind of cocoon you from infection, but it's dependent upon the contagion of the virus. And also it's dependent upon other people. So we have to empower people to realize that their behavior and their uh, getting vaccines impacts the entire population. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, that's a that's a great analogy. Thank you very much, Catherine. Um, I, I just wanted to mention briefly, I don't want to get too much off topic, but I thought this was interesting. Uh, we published an article recently in Science that, um, since John mentioned polio, that showed that the, the live attenuated oral polio vaccine seemed to have provide some protection against other viruses. And I, I found this quite interesting. And I, I just wanted to get some comment from the three of you. Um, maybe Kizmeke will we'll start off with you. Is, um, so sort of, I, I always had the impression as a, a scientist, but as also a semi-lay person, that you gave a vaccine for a particular virus and that's what it protected you against. But now it seems that we're finding that there's broader protection. How does this happen? Um, so I, I think that this borderline cross protection is a very gray area, um, particularly in times like this where you have large populations who have gotten, 
you know, vaccines for a particular things such as polio. Um, and then you may not see um, SARS-CoV-2, for example, transmitting as well in those populations. So it is something that is controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we should be safe in the way that we think about protection, particularly cross protection, and understand that vaccines, unless they are designed to give some robust, so high level and long-term protection against something else are specific to the pathogen for which they are designed. So there are vaccines that, um, especially now people are thinking about more, but like, for example, the flu field has thought about for some time that are considered to be universal vaccines. And so these are vaccines that are designed to be preemptive against future infections. Um, And so that is a thing. But um, when you think about vaccines that cross beyond viral family borders, um, et cetera, you have to be very weary of the way that you term protection um, Mm. and even the immunogenicity uh, in this case. But John probably has a different view than me. Uh, no, I actually don't. I, I okay. think that this, the, the, the TB vaccine has also been um, thought of for years to have an impact on other diseases. And I think Kismeki is exactly right that it, if it does have an impact, it's minor. It's not going to get us out of this situation. And people are desperate, so they're looking for, I mean, a vaccine is going to stimulate innate immune responses too and that might have a broader impact but this is that's just a junky way to go about it it's sloppy it's not really what we need or want maybe if it has some impact great but clearly it's not solving the problem notice that i said gray area which is synonymous <laughs> with sloppy <laughs> you were being, being, being polite i'm not going to be polite about it I, I i think that there's a possibility they have some impact it's worth looking at it's being studied but I, I, would, uh, I would be shocked if they actually had a major impact um, mm-hmm. uh, on a disease that isn't the same um, bug. It just, it doesn't make sense. Okay, excellent, thank you. Uh, so I wanted to come to Operation Warp Speed, uh, something I think a lot of us might have heard about, uh, some might not. Uh, uh, John, maybe I can ask you to just kick us off. What, what is Operation Warp Speed? Um, and, you know, do, do we feel that it's going to be effective? Operation Warp Speed was launched by the Trump administration to see if we could accelerate vaccine development uh, to move at a faster pace than it ever had. The fastest vaccine turnaround that we've ever seen is for influenza vaccines. When there was a pandemic in 2009, we could turn around a vaccine in six months. But we already had a working vaccine and we were just plugging in a new virus to an existing vaccine. For a vaccine from scratch, the fastest one people often point to is four years for months. So could we move more quickly by doing primarily what's called at-risk manufacturing? And what that means is you're gonna make product with the assumption that you're gonna throw away a lot of it because they're not gonna work. So I'm gonna take, let's say five companies, I'm gonna give them all tons of money to make 100 million doses, only one of those is gonna work, let's say, and I'm gonna assume that the money I lose on the ones that don't work is money well spent because the one vaccine that works has 100 million doses ready day one so that you don't have uh, a demand that um, vastly exceeds the supply. 
there's also some notion that Operation Warp Speed would do some triaging and comparison of vaccines early on. I think that uh, has kind of fallen by the wayside as far as I can tell. Initially, I think there was a plan to do a master monkey experiment to do head-to-head -head comparisons of many vaccines, maybe as many as 14. But I think that got abandoned somewhere along the way. I think they're moving so quickly that, that the plans change quickly. I, I also think and I've, I've, that lots of people have been critical about the transparency issues with warp speed because warp speed has taken place making decisions behind closed doors. Even people who are at the top of like Kathy is on uh, an NIH advisory committee, more or less, uh, not really what it is, but it's an NIH group that helps inform warp speed. These people on the committee often don't even know what vaccines warp speed is choosing or why they're choosing them. So there's been some confusion and criticism, and there's also been criticism of the name itself because of concern that people who are vaccine hesitant worry greatly about vaccines being rushed to the public. And the notion of warp speed is a notion um, that feeds that, that fire. Uh, the, the flip side is everyone wants a vaccine as quickly as possible, but it takes time and uh, you have to do a staged testing process where you begin with a small number of people looking for safety and immune responses. You then go from like 50 to 500 looking for the same thing. And then you go to 5,000 or 30,000 people to answer the real question. And that staged system is meant to find problems and, and meant to get rid of dangerous things. And if you move too quickly, you could possibly miss signals of danger. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think that warp speed, by and large, everyone wants a vaccine tomorrow. But people in the field all recognize you cannot will this into being. You have to have a process to do things carefully or, or you will make mistakes. And we have historical examples that I could list for the next hour of mistakes we've made in the past, including the March of Dimes, by the way, which in the 1930s rushed forward a few vaccines that hurt kids and crippled that field for years and years. All right. Oh, great, great opportunity to throw it over to Catherine. <laughs> I think it's really important, though, that you understand that this vaccine certainly has been uh, put in, into people in an expeditious way. But I think you need to understand, and, and Kuznikia can um, can sort of amplify this, but, but the vaccine community has been working very hard. Um, I started out with black hair, and look at me now. <laughs> and working very hard to figure out how to make better vaccines. And the, and the VRC, um, where Kismikia works, has been looking at platforms, as is, as is Oxford, as Sarah outlined, and, and, and trying to figure out you know, how we can make vaccines that, that uh, prepare for the next pandemic, because we don't know what the next pandemic is, and to just plug and play um, and, and begin to do that, to study adjuvants, a lot of the money that's been put in HIV, um, you know, a lot of the work that's been done with RSV, which is for me as a pediatrician, a major problem, all of that structure work has laid the groundwork for what Kazmikia is doing safely. So it is warp speed, but we all have been paddling like mad for decades to come up with better vaccines that are safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that that's one of uh, the points that is generally missed. Um, with the general public is that you know um you know january 10th <laughs> when the sequence of the virus came out it's not like we woke up and we said 
without any knowledge of anything related to coronavirus vaccines, without having ever thrown our antigen into mRNA, we're going to go at risk and try to have this thing into phase one clinical trial by, you know, three months or whatever it was that we said at that time. Um, you know, as a scientific lead, <laughs> I can show you mounds of data that supported why we chose the antigen, why we, even down to why we chose the doses that we went into in mice initially, we had evidence around that, why we chose to go with the mRNA platform initially, uh, all, you know, the, our product portfolio has several platforms, but yeah, I think it, you know, there's a lot of evidence that went behind not just our initial, what John's calls at risk, pulling the trigger for phase one clinical trial manufacturing lot, um, but other people's as well. And, um, you know, I am sad, um, very lately speaking, that the warp speed terminology um, has really kind of probably been working against itself and particularly with people who have already had vaccine hesitancy because it sounds like you're doing something without caution. Um, and even I think only can only speak for myself, reminding myself that I can only speak for myself and our, our stuff. But, um, you know, even the phase one trial, for example, was designed with caution. You dose escalate as you see safety uh, mm -hmm. it, and immunogenicity, um, you know, having put together or assisted in putting together packages of data for the FDA, I will say that no one's slacking. We're just doing the what, you know, we can in the time that we have and understanding that this is a global pu public health crisis mm -hmm. um, and you do not waste a day. Actually, when we waste a day, uh, for whatever reason, we are upset with ourselves. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. so this is not some just us going about this in a non-cautious way. It's about us adding the level of criteria that we normally would for safety, et cetera, into this. We have the knowledge. Let's do this at risk. Mm -hmm. Bucket. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a um, a second program that's international called Act Accelerator that is um, similarly um, sitting on a big pile of money and looking to move things forward more quickly than in the past. And I think it's also important to remember that Kismekia, she mentioned January 10th, her group started working on making this vaccine January 11th, the day after the sequence became available, and warp speed didn't exist that day. You guys were moving at warp speed, if you will, without there being a program to move as quickly as possible. The program came later and lots of lots and lots of researchers and companies were working at incredible speed to make their first vaccine candidates before warp speed existed. And, you know, Kismiki, what you did with Moderna was outside of that structure. And they agreed to do some at risk of their own risk to move forward January 13th, right? I mean, that's crazy. That timeline shows the sense of urgency and also the advancement of technology that allows you to move at that speed. I also think we should keep in mind that China has gone about this with their own kind of warp speed effort 
even though it's not organized that way. And they have selected as their lead candidates several inactivated vaccines that the U.S. has shied away from. And China is making great progress with those inactivated vaccines. And I think we have to be really open-minded about which technologies are going to prove to be effective. This could be an easy virus to beat. It could be that everything we throw at it works, regardless of the technology. Or it could be that an old-fashioned technology of a whole virus works better than just using the spike protein, the surface protein of the virus, which is what most everyone is doing. China's taking a radically different approach with their inactivated vaccines, throwing the whole virus killed at this problem and asking, what does it do? And I, uh, with the history of vaccines that I've followed, I've been surprised again and again by what ends up working. It's not what we think. It's what nature decides (laughs) is the best route. And we have to be patient and see what happens. I think that certainly this is a time when we want everyone to hit home runs. Um, you know, we, we want every as many vaccines to work as possible because, you know, in, uh, immunizing the world's people by, by and large with two doses is going to be one whale of a heck of a lot of work. Um, and, and so I think that's important. I do feel that we have information um, about adverse events that have happened in animals. Um, and, and certainly, you know, some of the adverse events that happened in animal studies of SARS-1 uh, used inactivated vaccines. So I think that, that um, you know, there, there does need to be caution. And I hope that, that the Chinese will be forthcoming with adverse events if they occur, uh, because we, we uh, 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 want to make sure that, that the presentation of the antigen generates antibody responses that are functional, but also um, uh, T-cell, TH1 kind of responses. So I, I totally agree, but I hope that everyone is forthcoming about um, both their immunologic and their, uh, and their adverse events. Mm-hmm. So Catherine, thank you for that. And I, I wanted to stay with you to talk a little bit more about safety, um, but from the perspective of those people that are going to be taking or, or being inoculated with the virus. And some of the things that Kismekia said I give me uh, a lot of hope and, and make me feel a lot better about this. But there's still a lot of vaccine hesitancy out there. Um, you know, not just the, the so-called anti-vaxxers, but, you know, the, those people that see these, the, the Operation Warp Speed, think things are moving very quickly and might be just that little bit reluctant to, to have that vaccine. So. Uh, can you help at all to convince them that this, it is going to be safe and that everything is being done to, to make them safe? Sure. So I think we need to look a little bit at what fuels vaccine he- hesitancy in general. And, and by and large, it sort of falls into three buckets. Um, and I think it's really helpful when we address questions about F- of, of hesitancy to think about this. First, people have to feel that the disease is important. Um, that they want to participate because they want to prevent the disease. So I think that's very important. Secondly, they have to feel that the vaccine is safe. And so I think it's really important that we go over how we're doing that and how we're assessing that. And three, people want to decide whether they want to take the vaccine themselves. Just like the mask issue, you know, they want to decide whether they're going to wear them or not. So we have to think about in those particular terms. Um, I think in terms of safety, the NIH um, and and the VRC has um, 
and a number of a Brighton collaborations, a number of scientists around the world have taken the animal data, have taken to sort of see, well, what do we need to make sure that the vaccine will be safe? And I think by and large, people feel that we need to generate functional antibody that actually neutralizes the virus and that we need to make the right kind of T cells as Kazmikia explained. Um, so those are being looked at in a very, very careful way. In addition, each individual vaccine trial has a data safety and monitoring committee um, that is made up of old people like me who had been working vaccines for decades. And we have seen almost everything. And we want to make sure if there is a signal that we pick it up because we do not want to give vaccine to thousands of people that causes a bad thing that will set everything back. So every single adverse event we look at, we ask people who participate in these studies to take their temperature repeatedly to go over things we see people. So this is all done in a very, very meticulous way. There is a master data safety and monitoring committee for warp speed. And let me tell you, those are tough cookies. And if there's going to be some adverse event, they are not going to keep it quiet, they're going to investigate it. So that is happening uh, at, at each individual and, and each study. The FDA also will be very carefully looking at the, at the results and going over every step of the way to try and assess if there's an adverse reaction to see why it is, what it's, it's involved with. So I, I want people to realize that we are taking the safety issue uh, seriously, we are moving quickly, but that doesn't mean we will be shortchanged in terms of the data that we generate. Right. So, uh, Kizmeki, let me come to you, just coming off the, that uh, Catherine's answer, and I want to come back to Catherine possibly as well, but the, my understanding is the, the mRNA and the chimpadenovirus have not um, uh, in, in the past had a commercial component. So there has not been a commercial vaccine made from from those uh, particular uh, components. So is there anything different that's being done in developing these vaccines to, to look at safety? So um, just stepping back from your question just a little bit to give kind of um, an historical lens um, in that, so there is vaccine development in uh, kind of two arenas, right? The one thing that you need to, you have to do is you have to need the vaccine. Um, so, for example, um, you know there are phase one studies for mRNA for Zika, but moving something through the clinical trial trajectory through to licensure is largely a decision about the necessity of the vaccine. Um, and so because something has not necessarily, has not been put onto the market yet, does not mean that it, there are reasons outside of, did we need it? Um, and I think that this is really, uh, just speaking from the mRNA platform, this is really the only time that we have, they, that this platform has been able to answer that kind of void. Um, and so, um, you know, there's a first time for everything. I think that's just it, right? As far as whether or not the, is this safe? Um, are the, is that question different comparing, for example, whole inactivated vaccines, which have, you know, 
people have been getting for decades. Um, no, <laughs> the question about whether something is safe or not remains the same. Um, you know, there are historical data around the particular platform, uh, the particular platforms um, in people. So mRNA has been through phase one and safety has been assessed previously, et cetera. So I, I think that being first comes with a lot of, whether it be the chimp ad or mRNA, et cetera, it comes with a lot of uh, question marks. But I think that there are angles of which um, the data has will be and has been able to answer those um, mm -hmm. those inquiries. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I generally don't give in to the to skepticism that easily. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, I, I'm I think that the optimism around these vaccine platforms, all inclusively, uh, remains the same. Mm -hmm. Right. There's, some, there's something else about vaccine hesitancy I wanted to add, and people often are vaccine hesitant about diseases they haven't seen. Why should I get this vaccine when that disease doesn't ever show up in my life? And it's one of the problems vaccines have. They're so very good at what they do that they can make diseases disappear. And then people, it's like, you know, you wear your seatbelt. What, you drove on the freeway for four hours and you didn't have an accident. Therefore, you didn't need your seatbelt. Um, it's that kind of logic that gets into the conversation and I think vastly impacts how people perceive vaccine desire. Mm -hmm. And in communities that have seen a lot of COVID-19 disease, I suspect there'll be a lot more demand and less hesitancy for the vaccine because they'll have fear. And fear is a great motivator yeah. and people will want to protect themselves. But in places where people, like in the little town where I live, I don't know anyone who's had the disease. And that will, I think, in and of itself, create a hurdle for people about getting vaccinated. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's happening in New York. You know, that's just how people think. Yeah, and, of, and people also have to be compelled, in this country in particular, to think collectively. <laughs> because we're, we're an incredibly selfish group of people which you can see with all the videos of people screaming at each other about wearing masks. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, as, again, you know, as I said, the first component of hesitancy has to believe, has you have to believe that the disease is bad. Um, and so I think that there is a richness um, in the human interest stories, um, you know, public radio every or public TV every, every Friday has a list of stories about people who have been who died of, of COVID. And, and so I think that people have to get a face to this and understand that it's it's an equal an equal opportunity infector um, so that we all are at risk. But Jonathan's points are, are, are very, very good ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that to me um, <laughs> um, really stood out when what John said in that, you know, people are selfish. I think you, you actually just have to think about being vaccinated all inclusively, not just for, you know, SARS-CoV-2, but your, all of your vaccines. Sometimes things are not about you um, and what your level of immunity and protection can do for the people around you and your community, um, in my perspective, should outweigh that. 
um, you know, there's a particular, I think, meme or something that says, why are you concerned about my mask if your mask works? Mm. Well, <laughs> so we are concerned because maybe you not having on a mask can infect someone else who chose not to wear a mask. And so I might be protected because I have on a mask, but mm. I'm thinking outside of myself. So and so um, I think that that's kind of the way that we have to think about vaccines in general, but also from a vaccinologist standpoint, which I guess I was trying to not call myself that in my career, but I think I'm going to just have to, <laughs> is that because um, I wanted to be a viral immunologist. That's what I am. <laughs> um, but I think that we have to understand that, you know, people's concerns come from a place of validity validity for, them, for themselves and that the way that we think about things on a population level does not necessarily affect how people think about things on the individual mm -hmm. level. And it's sometimes very hard to tap into that. Um, and, you know, honestly, this is the first time I've ever seen you know, sitting in my place of privilege, however you may put it, um, that I've ever seen my own personal community speak out on their distrust of science and vaccinology in general. And I kind of just set from this place of, well, I see what's happening on the day to day. I understand what the FDA is asking for. I understand that every single safety signal is looked at with a microscopic lens. And I'm seeing that, but other people aren't seeing that. Mm -hmm. And um, I've just kind of come down into a place of empathy in that, you know, I get it. There historically, sometimes things have slipped through the cracks. Historically, particularly, frankly, in the black community, have people haven't necessarily been the most taken care of. And so I get it. Uh, also, this Operation Warp Speed, frankly, is coming from the government mm -hmm. that also has a cloud of distrust generally, particularly in, you know, certain communities. And so it's just a, a jumble of things. And so I don't necessarily fault people, but what I've been asking of people is that how about you even if it's not necessarily your expertise, or even if, you know, this is not something, this is something that is new to you, how about you maybe look at the graph? Or when people say, oh, but there is a safety signal, blah, 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 whatever dose. Did you go to the table? Did you actually, you know, try to break down each of the press releases and all of the headlines really in a line by line basis to kind of make the best decision for you and your family mm -hmm. is, is really the only way to go about it. Mm -hmm. uh, Nikki, you're bringing up something that I think is really critical and that's hard to talk about. And it's the intersection of Black Lives Matter and COVID-19 pandemic. And the it's a really um, explosive intersection because African-American communities in this country were already being hit harder by the virus. There was already a disproportionate amount of disease. And then you have a Black Lives Matter movement gain more and more attention because of a horrible murder of a man. And the federal government's response from the Trump administration fuels and incites anger 
about this and becomes more and more divisive and there's less trust. And then they make, from the federal government standpoint, scientific statements that are in direct contrast to what the leading scientists are saying. And so the trust in the White House feeds into the vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's the intersection of these two things that is potent and, and, and leads to a, a real problem for everyone. And we have to understand that we're all in this together globally, globally. I mean, look at Hong Kong today that has 100 cases and they have 100 cases. China has new cases because it doesn't go away just because you take care of it. Mm -hmm. We all have to get into this mindset that we're all fighting the same enemy (laughs) and worldwide, you know, and I don't think we've ever had the same enemy in my lifetime where the whole world is looking at something saying, if we don't get this together to, in a collective way, we're screwed. And, and that's the bottom line. You know, um, when I, this is kind of anecdotal, but I think it just kind of plays into the story in that when I uh, came to the Vaccine Research Center, the MERS epidemic was dying out. So it was the end of 2014, you know, it was very clear that taking any of the MERS vaccine candidates, no matter how good they are preclinically, into the clinic would essentially be a quote unquote waste of money. And one of the reasons why I wanted to work on coronaviruses is because it kind of was under the radar in a way that I could do, I felt, have a scientific niche. Um, And kind of with that, as some of the uh, infections for MERS started to increase again in the Middle East, the question became, well, what's the vaccine population for us to test all of these things that we had beautiful preclinical data on? And, you know, jokingly, it's like, no one's gonna agree to test this vaccine because no one is seeing it hit them. Or, you know, there's also a joke that after Zika was found in sperm, the research dollars increased. It's because now men can relate, (laughs) right? At first it was women and children, and now it's found in sperm, and so we have to do something. And that's the type of attitude that I think right now puts us in a very different, as John can say, predicament in that in his lifetime he's never seen where collectively we all need the thing to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think, you know, yeah, it is, it's um, sad to see it happening on this kind of global level um, where the devastation is for all, for the world, so to speak. But in my opinion, this is the only way that science, we can make the types of advancements that we need is if the science is for everybody. Um, and so I want to just applaud Kismikia. Um, I, I think that, um, your work, um, your, uh, uh, fastidious attention to detail, your, um, the progress that's made. I mean, you are an amazing role model. Um, and we need, um, tens of, you know, we need thousands of you and, and we need people, um, of all kinds of, of genders and racial backgrounds to, to be part of the science and part of the communication. So I just am so proud of you and what you've done. And I think that that are such a role model for all of us. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, 
Congratulations. Yeah. I, Thanks. I agree. And this My is, team members would probably be mad at that statement. <laughs> My attention to detail is why they don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would love to continue this part of the conversation. I think we could have a whole webinar on this. But before we, we end, we, we have about 10 minutes left and we might run over the hour a little bit. But I, I did want to touch on something that I think is really important. And that's how do we get that vaccine out there once we have it? Um, so I, I want to bring in um, a short video clip from uh, Trevor Mundell, who was kind enough to record an answer for us. He wasn't able to join us live, unfortunately. Um, Trevor is the president um, of the Global Health Division at the Gates Foundation. And the question that I asked him is, if a vaccine were available today, what do you believe are the greatest challenges to getting it to every last person on Earth? So uh, let's roll that video. Clearly, that challenge is going to be very dependent on where that last person lives. We know that in low infrastructure settings, getting vaccines out there has been a huge challenge for the global health community over the last many years. But I have to say that with all the investments we've made in organizations like Gavi for vaccines, there's been tremendous progress. And in the campaigns that happen now across the globe, sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, we are able to target, in the Gavi case, millions and millions of kids in the most remote regions. So it would seem that even in this setting, we have the mechanism to get those vaccines right out there. Now, in terms of the actual number of vaccines that we can deliver, the campaigns, the biggest campaigns we've had in the past have been hundreds of millions, maybe 300 million people at one time. So if the number is going to be larger than that, and it may well be, let's say it would be an objective of a billion people, that would be beyond what we've done before. But I do think that the ingenuity that's been used to get vaccines out into remote areas that has been pretty successful so far can be deployed in this regard as well. Great. So thank you for that, Trevor. Uh, so one of the takeaways from that that I, I thought was really interesting is is the largest um, vaccine program that they've had is about 300 million people. We're looking at getting this, um, I think, as Catherine said, maybe two doses to the entire world, essentially. So how do we do this? Uh, Catherine, maybe I can start with you. You know, what, what is the process? Well, I think that, that it's, it's going to be a lot of work. We have to, first of all, make sure that we have an adequate supplies. We have to prioritize who should get it. Um, and, and the people that are at greatest risk. Um, I think we also have um, vaccine infrastructures for, for children, but they're not really the, the people that are getting the sickest um, and probably are not going to be the first to get the vaccine. But we don't have very good infrastructures for the administration of vaccines to adults, even in the United States. Um, so we, we have to work on that and, and you know certainly pharmacies and having registers so we know who got what vaccine so that and that could be um, so if an adverse event were to happen or down the road, we need to know that. And then also, I think you have to think about in the in the low and middle income countries, there really isn't a system at all for administration to do adults. So how do we do that? Do we do that in some of the existing pediatric EPI structures? Um, I think those are going to be real challenges. And I think that is why we, we really are a global community. That's why we need to figure out how we could work with, with our global partners, um, you know, be it WHO or, or, or that to do that, because these are gonna be really hard things. And just as Trevor said, there are existing infrastructures with Gavi and, and other 
other outreach, but it's going to be very difficult um, to be able to do this and particularly how we have to do it. I mean, if we if the DNA vaccines are some that, that we have to, you know, put in Africa, you know, taking an electroporator to give the vaccine is not going to be easy. So we have to have the practicality of how to approach them. So this is a big issue. Um, that the vaccine deliverers um, and administrators and policy people have to be working on it. And certainly they are at this time as well. Hmm. John, any I think it's also going to take some creativity and they are huge. Yeah, um, yeah, well, one, one of the things I think we can learn from is what Congo has done with the Ebola vaccine, or, which they've given to over 300,000 people in remote um, hostile territory where there's essentially a civil war. And they've been able to do this in, in a year's time, over 300,000 people with people on motorbikes and in, and in land cruisers. And they bring tablets into the field. And then they come back to their central place at the end of the day and can upload stuff in Congo. And I've worked in Congo. It, it is a difficult place to do things. There aren't roads in many places. There isn't Wi-Fi everywhere. And they can do it there. So let's learn from that and build on success. And it is going to take a lot of creativity everywhere. So the other big question that I think uh, needs to be addressed, and Catherine touched on this, is who gets the, the, the vaccine first? Uh, obviously, frontline workers seem an, an, an obvious choice. But I'm, I'm going to come back to um, another video from Trevor uh, where we asked him this question. What, should certain people get the vaccine first? And if so, who should that be? The key challenge here in terms of distributing vaccines has been, to my mind, how we really get them across the globe to all populations. We know that in high-income, middle-income countries, there's going to be an ability to afford a vaccine at a reasonable price, and it looks like that's where we'll be. But in lower middle-income countries, that might not be the case, and we have to work out mechanisms whereby we are able to get adequate vaccine capacity supply into those countries. Once we have that, then we have to think about who gets vaccinated in the country. And there are some obvious target populations, frontline workers, healthcare workers, may be a very sensible population to target. Then there would be the at-risk populations. We know that age is a risk factor and those risk factors are becoming increasingly well-defined beyond age, there's underlying conditions, whether that be obesity, diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or even to some extent hypertension, but those are being well-defined. So there's high-risk populations that we might want to target, that the countries themselves actually would want to target, are becoming better known. So I think we can have both a country level and an individual targeted level plan. Right, so thanks again to Trevor for that. And uh, Kizmekia, maybe I'll, I'll come to you. Do, you. do you disagree at all with, with Trevor's assessment of who should get the, the vaccine first? You know, I, I, I stay away from this question <laughs> um, because in my opinion, uh, it's just outside of my expertise range, right? So I know what the data looks like. I know how, what my opinion is on who should get the vaccine first. And obviously it makes sense that people who are most at risk should get the vaccine first. Um, but the truth of the matter is that I think my job is far easier than just, than having something that works 
to having a world that needs it and then deciding who in the world gets it. Um, mm -hmm. And so I just, I stay away from it well, <laughs> altogether. I, I'm going to come to John because I, I know he's going to have an opinion on this. I think it divides into two broad categories. And one is people who keep society functioning and the other is individual risk. And so when we put healthcare workers first and first line responders, we're saying these are people who keep society functioning, regardless if their personal risk is extraordinarily high. And we put them at the front. The question is everyone else. And there was a, the, there's, there's an advisory body to the CDC in the US that just held a meeting on this, the ACIP, and it's the advisory body on, on, uh, for immunization practices that gives recommendations as to how we should do this. And they're building off of pandemic influenza plans for prioritization, and they've created five tiers. Tier one's easy. <laughs> I mean, uh, or at least a percentage of tier one is easy. Everything else is difficult. One of the most um, difficult conversations that occurred at the ACIP meeting was about um, disparities in disease in ethnic minorities, in African-Americans and La Latinos or Latinxs, it's being called now. And should people of certain ethnicities be put in the front because they suffer more as a community from disease or because of income levels that lead to housing conditions that lead to more transmission. These are really complex questions. And you're not gonna find uh, unanimity. There was debate within the ACIP committee. And I'm glad to see these discussions taking place right now. They're very difficult discussions and they have to take place ahead of time. You don't figure this out on the fly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's the reality. And, um, it's, we're going to see how it falls out in the United States. And whatever the United States does, doesn't matter to the rest of the world. You know, the rest of the world is going to set their own priorities country by country and community by community. Uh, and it's going to depend a huge degree on supply. I mean, if there are 10 million doses for the world, <laughs> you know, it's a whole lot different than if there are a billion doses. And we just, we just don't know. So I'm glad to see these discussions happening now. And Kathy's been part of the ACLB. Yeah, I think that the CDC um, and NIH have also commissioned a study from the National Academy of Medicine, which will be beginning um, to actually address that. What should the priorities be and how should they be assigned? Um, so I think that, I, you know, I, I, I continue to hope in integrity and science. Um, and certainly I think that that would be what we would expect uh, from the Academy uh, report as well. Mm -hmm. There's something else on a global scale that's important. With H1N1 pandemic in 2009, there are a lot of people who are at the front of the response there who are deeply disappointed in what happened. And what happened there was wealthy countries purchased vaccine and kind of hoarded it and said to the world's poor, well, we'll give you 10% of our production. And I think there's a round agreement in, in international circles anyway, but that's not the way to do things. So there's a, a COVAX is this, um, new organization that's been set up to look at equitable distribution of vaccine should a vaccine prove safe and effective. And that fits into the prioritization scheme as well, because what it's saying is that just because you live in a poor country, it doesn't mean you should be behind someone who lives in a rich country. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Well, um, unfortunately, we are going to have to end it there. We're out of time. Um, I wish I could go on for at least another hour or so, but I'm also aware that you are all very busy people. Um, so uh, many thanks to our fantastic panel for taking the time to join us, to share their knowledge and expertise. Uh, it really has been a, a pleasure talking with all of you. Uh, a reminder, um, we are planning more webinars in this series later in the year, so please look out for those at webinar.sciencemag.org. And if you would like to sign up to receive alerts about upcoming events, please use the, the link in the resources tab uh, just to the right of the video window. Uh, if you'd like to send us your thoughts on this webinar, please feel free to email webinar at AAAS.org. Again, uh, thank you so much to our panel. Uh, it's really been a, a fantastic thank discussion. Um, and thank you to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. So goodbye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye.